recording this podcast episode on the 15th of April, 2020, a day where, according to the World Health Organization, the number of confirmed COVID-19 cases is approaching 2 million globally. There are more than 100,000 confirmed deaths in more than 200 countries, areas, or territories with confirmed COVID-19 patients. These numbers will continue to increase until a vaccine is approved and available for global distribution. In the meantime, the path to COVID-19 response continues to be a combination of scientific, data-driven decision-making, rigorous ingenuity, solidarity, and resilience. So let's talk about that data-driven science today, especially as it relates to patients around the world who are suffering the most extreme cases of this viral infection. I'm Mara Bowen, podcasting for the Abbott Nutrition Health Institute, and I'm here today with Dr. Stephen McClave, who plans to review the SCCM Aspen guidance on nutrition therapy for COVID patients in the ICU. Dr. McClave is Professor of Medicine, Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition at the University of Louisville, School of Medicine in Louisville, Kentucky. Dr. McClave, welcome. Hello, uh, Mara. It's glad to be part of this uh, podcast. Uh, this is an incredible pandemic that we're in the middle of, and uh, uh, we need to share and disseminate information as it comes in and make sure we understand how it impacts uh, nutritional management of our patients. Totally agree, and we're so glad you're here. There's one quick thing I wanted to note for our listeners, and it's that this podcast recording may sound a little softer than you're used to hearing. That's for the sake of social distancing. Dr. McClave and I are both dialing in for today's discussion rather than sitting in the studio. So, Dr. McClave, before we start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your current role and what brought you to this area of focus in your career? Um, I'm a gastroenterologist in Louisville, Kentucky, and I've had a career-long interest in critical care nutrition. Uh, the uh, physiologic response to early enteral feeding, uh, achieving enteral excess, enteral excess techniques, tolerance of enteral feeding. I've been heavily involved in guidelines, um, indirect calorimetry. Um, this uh, experience with COVID came on abruptly uh, three or four weeks ago, and uh, we'll talk about that in a minute, uh, but it basically was a group of us that had worked on guidelines before for Aspen and SCCM, um, and all of a sudden we realized that we needed recommendations for nutritional therapy, and uh, that brought us together uh, in a very rapid uh, sequence of events that uh, we'll share with you. Now, globally and here in the U.S., intensive care units have become overwhelmed with patients with the severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2-induced respiratory failure leading to COVID-19 disease. Now, if there's one thing we're trying to spell out in this podcast series, it's that the provision of critical care nutrition is an integral part of the care of these patients. So earlier this month, the Society of Critical Care Medicine, that's SCCM, and the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, that's ASPEN, released guiding principles and recommendations for the nutrition care of these patients. And that guidance is presented in a publication called Nutrition Therapy in the Patient with COVID-19 Disease Requiring ICU Care. It was updated April 1st of this year. And as you mentioned, you're one of the authors on these recommendations. It's so great to be able to go right to the source and ask, how did SCCM and Aspen and the expert authors come to these recommendations? This was a very rapid process that began in the last week of March. Um, on Thursday and Friday, March 19th and 20th, uh, the SCCM posted the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines for the Management of the COVID-19 Patient. 
Beth Taylor, one of our blue blood Aspen uh, dietitians, uh, RD, PhD, who's also on the SCCM board, was in the process of reviewing those guideline recommendations and noticed that there's nothing about the nutritional management of the patient. Uh, she contacted the board and they said, oh yeah, we need recommendations for nutritional management. And SCCM has been very good about posting uh, recommendations on their website. And this is a very rapid turnaround, and they want to get information out to managing ECMO, managing the ventilator, uh, available treatment. And so they realized this was a, a hole they were missing. Uh, on Friday, Beth came back to a group of us that had worked on the SCCM Aspen guidelines in 2016-2009, uh, Bob Martindale and myself. Uh, also, we contacted Jay Patel in Milwaukee and uh, Melissa Warren, who's a dietitian, worked with Bob. And she said, we've got to put together recommendations. And so over a four-day process, we put together a, an early manuscript. And then over the next six days, this was reviewed exhaustively by two boards with the SCCM and the Aspen board. And at the end of 10 days, March 30th, we had a manuscript that was approved by all three boards and was posted online April 1st. It was interesting that they requested COVID-specific recommendations. <laughs> Our first response was, wait a minute, we, there is no data. We're in the middle of this pandemic. It's way too early. And so we said, what we're going to do is start with the basic principles of critical care nutrition and modify those based on the constraints of this disease process. So instead of COVID-specific recommendations, these are COVID-relevant recommendation, and that's an important distinction. And the other important distinction is that these are not guidelines. Guidelines designates a very well-defined process where you review the literature, you grade the quality of evidence in the literature, a committee puts it together, uh, the manuscript, and then it's reviewed by external reviewers as well as the boards. So these are not guidelines. These are just recommendations at the, based on the information we have at the present time. Well, that truly sounds like a dynamic process and truly impressive to pull something together that quickly, especially something of this magnitude. And practitioners are so hungry for this information. So we're grateful you and the team were able to pull the guidance together so quickly. Can you tell us a little bit about what's different about COVID-19 patients than other critical care patients you see? This pandemic is crazy because uh, this is a virus that humans have never been exposed to, so we have no immunity to it. Uh, world estimates now uh, suggest that at the, t at the end of this pandemic, 50 to 60 percent of the world will be infected by this virus. Um, it's not as severe as some of the other corona-related viruses we've seen in the past. The mortality rate with SARS um, which was uh, in 2002 uh, was 14%. The mortality with MERS, a Middle East version of this respiratory syndrome, was in 2012 was 35%. The overall mortality in the COVID-19 uh, pandemic is about 4%. The vast majority of these patients are asymptomatic. So if you start with 100% of patients, 80% are mild. 50% of that 100% are asymptomatic, don't even know they have it. Another 30% uh, feel like they got the flu but can stay home. And then you got about 20% that end up in the hospital. Of the original 100%, 5% of those end up in an ICU, 
and uh, probably three quarters of those patients be, uh, end up on the ventilator. A quarter of that 5% are this rapid deterioration. Um, so this is a wide spectrum of disease. Uh, to me, this pandemic has brought out the value of, of public health. Um, I knew it was important in the past. I had no clue how important they were until we got to this pandemic. Um, adequate testing has been a problem all along. We have to know who has it, who doesn't, who's now immune, um, and we don't know that. Uh, these public health officials were very dependent on them. I'd never even, well, I was never aware of social isolation. Um, this disorder has a long incubation period and infectivity before the patient even knows they have them. So if you get exposed, it may be a couple of days before you become infective, and you may go eight to 10 days in which you're shedding the virus um, before you actually become symptomatic. Um, with this pandemic, we have this personal losses, loss of employment, loss of personal liberties. We're telling people they can't go to church. Um, there was an epidemiologist in Chicago that made the comment, the healthy and the optimistic do the vulnerable. vulnerable. So if we go around and we're healthy, we don't know we have this, and yet we're spreading it. The people that suffer it the most are the patients that are older, obese, diabetic, who have comorbidities, and they will not do well with this uh, virus. And then the last thing are, and, and this is the tough part, is where you are as an institution on the curve. Are you in the middle of an aggressive surge like New York, where it's like a war zone, or are you more like uh, we are here in Louisville or Milwaukee in uh, Wisconsin, in which uh, we're getting increased numbers, but maybe less than 20 to 30 in our ICUs, uh, half of which are on ventilation, mechanical ventilation, in which the, the surge is very manageable. So where you are on that surge affects the supplies that you have, um, the, whether you have pumps, uh, how badly uh, you need ventilators and, and uh, dialysis machines. So all this is a moving target, um, and it's tough as uh, nutritionists to get our handle on uh, where we stand at our hospital. So your last statement led into this question, I think. How does infectivity and disease transmission affect the care for these patients? That is the part that uh, it's, it's hard as nutritionists who aren't used to managing infectious disease. It's tough for us. The CDC and the World Health Organization says there are three important aspects that we have to worry about with this infectivity business. One is cluster care. That means you don't want to go into the patient's room uh, more often than you need to. And so when you go in, you cluster all your things, your medicines, your suction, your uh, repositioning of the patient, um, your, your monitoring of the feeding tubes. Um, you cluster that care. Um, and if they're on the ward, you might go in at the beginning of the shift, the middle of the shift, and the end of, the, of a 12-hour shift. Uh, obviously, you'll have to go in more often than an ICU. Number two, they, they recommend minimizing exposure to COVID patients which means you can't just go in and see them because they're your patient and they're on your patient list for the day. 
if you aren't necessary, you don't need to go in the room because you can uh, infect uh, uh, healthcare workers, you can carry the disease home uh, to your family or to other people in the community. And then finally, we have to preserve use of this personal protective equipment. Uh, these masks, uh, everybody has talked about uh, shortages there. We're, we're within a week of running out of yellow gowns here in Louisville, and we really haven't even hit the surge badly. So preserving that personal protective equipment protects our healthcare workers. So let's get into the SCCM Aspen guidance. It includes eight recommendations addressing timing, route, and monitoring of nutritional therapy, all based on the best available evidence, but also taking into account the key guidance principles related to the COVID-19 disease process. First, let's start with recommendation two, timing of nutrition delivery. Why is timing of nutrition delivery so important for these patients, and what is the recommendation? This is Again, basic critical care nutrition. So this is COVID-19 relative care. Uh, the first thing we said as we got together, the group of us to put these recommendations together, we said, what is the most important thing that we do for these patients? And, and the answer was that we provide early enteral feeding to bathe the intestinal mucosa with uh, enteral formula. And we said, how soon are we talking about? And we said, well, arbitrarily, within 24 to 36 hours of admission to the ICU or within 12 hours of intubation and placement of that large bore nasogastric or gastric tube. Uh, interestingly, uh, the ESPEN recommendations that uh, have come out uh, in the last two weeks uh, said the same thing, uh, start enteral nutrition early and try to get the goal by the end of one week. The key issue here is the physiologic response to enteral nutrition. That's why timing is important. Um, the gut, remember, is the largest uh, uh, immune organ in the body. It has the greatest volume of immune tissue. It also has the largest microbial burden in the body. There are bacteria elsewhere, but the gut has the largest uh, amount. And so you can think of the gut as an accelerator. You come in with this COVID uh, disease, you're already inflamed, and the gut can either can impact that response to the critical COVID illness, um, which means that we have an opportunity to modulate that response via the gut. Um, if we can get enteral nutrition in, that helps us maintain barrier defenses, appropriate immune responses or to immune tolerance. We support the commensal microbiome. Now, that sounds incredibly naive when you're talking about patients that are this sick. But the key is, if we aren't able to provide enteral nutrition, we, we, we lose what opportunity we can to treat them via the gut, and instead we would get dysbiosis, an adversarial immune response. That leads us to the next recommendation, recommendation three, which addresses root and tube placement and method of nutrition delivery. Can you walk us through the main points of this recommendation, including that enteral nutrition is preferred to parenteral nutrition and that the continuous rather than bolus enteral feeding is strongly recommended? Um, enteral feeding is preferred over parenteral nutrition because of that physiologic response that we discussed a minute ago. Um, the ESPEN guidelines agree with this. The ESPEN guidelines for COVID-19, as well as the ESPEN guidelines for critical care that was published in 2018. And everybody says start in the stomach. Um, that's the first step. 
Um, and usually what happens with the really sick patients that end up getting intubated, they get their top tier intubator. He gets some intubated uh, the tube, endotracheal tube into the lungs. They place a nasogastric or gastric tube. They put in a central line, not in the IJ, hopefully not in the subclavian. They use pick lines because they don't want the central line right there at the head and neck where all this uh, droplet transmission is going on. And all that happens at once. So usually we have a, a large bore tube into the stomach that we can feed. If there's evidence of poor tolerance to that gastric feeding, the next step would be prokinetic agents. And then the next step after that would be to switch to postpyloric tube placement. The Recommendation of continuous over bolus feeding, again, is based on reducing exposure of the healthcare team uh, to uh, um, the potential uh, uh, contamination, uh, decreases the frequency in which the healthcare team has to interact with the patient. Um, there is a meta-analysis from the ESPEN guidelines uh, in 2018 that showed there's less diarrhea with continuous feeding. Uh, that's not a huge deal. Um, but mainly the intermittent bolus feeding would require the nurse to go in at periodic intervals and, you know, shoot in some uh, uh, formula and then walk out. Um, having said that, uh, in the surge, uh, like in New York, when they're running out of supplies, guess what? They ran out of, of uh, um, pumps. Uh, they didn't have enough pumps to provide continuous uh, infusion. So in that setting, uh, you would probably go to gravity drain next, and only if you didn't have the bags, because some institutions ran out of bags, did they switch to uh, bolus feeding. One nice thing is the assurance that bolus feeding is okay. We recommend continuous, but if pump situations, gravity bags are in short supply, bolus is safe in these patients. Um, but then the last thing, and this is very important, um, we think that in these recommendations for SCCM and Aspen, we, we emphasized that your threshold for abandoning enteral feeding and going to parental nutrition should be lower. Let's jump to recommendation five on formula selection. What type of enteral formula should clinicians be feeding their patients with COVID-19 in the ICU? And can you also address strategies for GI intolerance for these patients? Again, this is fairly straightforward critical care nutrition, uh, COVID-relevant recommendations. Uh, and, and just like our guidelines uh, in 2016, uh, we would recommend a standard polymeric high-protein isosmotic formula uh, at least 20% uh, protein or higher. Critically ill patients should get fiber. And Europe, Espen says, they need the amount of fiber equal to a normal healthy person, which is 0.5 grams per kilogram per day. We still said in these recommendations for the COVID-19 patients that we're nervous about fiber early on when they're septic, in shock, on pressure therapy, when there's significant GI dysfunction. So you might want to hold the fiber, at least the insoluble fiber uh, early, but you want to add it back as soon as they're, they're more stable. And finally, what are we talking about with GI intolerance? Um, you do not want to use gastric residual volumes. And if your institution has been struggling to get rid of residual volumes, 
This is one opportunity in the COVID pandemic. Now's your chance to dump this marker, which has been a horrible marker of gastric emptying and aspiration for three decades. It's been an impedance to the delivery of enteral feeding. But what it does in COVID-19, it increases the frequency of interaction between the healthcare providers and that patient. Some patients with COVID-19 have to be in the prone position to improve oxygenation and outcomes on the ventilator. In terms of the SCCM Aspen recommendations, Recommendation 7 specifically touches on nutrition for the patient undergoing prone positioning. What are the key elements of this recommendation? What's different about these COVID-19 patients is they come in and you think, oh, it's just another patient with ARDS, but they're pretty easy to ventilate. And what they have is this horrendous, severe, unexplained hypoxemia. And I kind of mentioned this uh, before. It, it has to do with ventilation perfusion mismatch, but the mismatch is more on the side of, of perfusion. Uh, the management of this unexplained hypoxemia is to intubate early and leave them intubated longer. Well, some of these patients don't respond well enough even to mechanic early and prolonged mechanical ventilation. And if the hypoxemia continues, that's when you have to go to the next step, uh, which is proning, and that uh, helps oxygenate the lungs. And if you could see a CT scan, when you lay on your back, fluid tends to accumulate in the lungs. They have these thick secretions that they can't clear, and the mechanics of the lung the box of the lungs is such that they just can't ventilate easily. You prone them, you turn them over on their stomach, they can clear those uh, bronchial secretions much better. The uh, mechanics of lung expansion, the space uh, in the chest that the lungs can expand, all that improves and it's easier to ventilate them and oxygenate them. The amazing thing is when they're in the prone position, everybody is worried about aspiration. Um, but it's tolerated very well. Um, we do recommend that they increase the head of the bed, put them in reverse trend downbird, which means you get the head of the bed up, you tilt the bed, head up 10 to 25 degrees. Um, retrospective studies, small RCTs showed that amazingly you can feed into the stomach and tolerance is good with no increased incidence of aspiration or ventilator-associated uh, pneumonia. Uh, the ECMO is the next step after proning. They're already on mechanical ventilation. The proning and mechanical ventilation isn't working. ECMO is the deal where it almost acts like a dialysis machine or a cardiopulmonary bypass machine. They take the blood out of the body, they oxygenate it and return it. These are the sickest of the six. The mortality rate uh, with ECMO and COVID is, is over 90%. Uh, these are the ones that are going to really have trouble. The recommendations also include some lessons learned from the field, which include practical clinical advice for caring for these patients. Can you share with us some of these lessons? And also, what have you experienced in your own clinical care of patients during this pandemic? One of the interesting things is um, CMS or Medicare, the, the, the governmental group that decides what they're going to reimburse and, uh, and what they're going to restrict reimbursement for, has already uh, acknowledged that we are trying to reduce uh, health uh, exposure of healthcare providers to this COVID. And so they've begun to lift restrictions and expand coverage and in and, and, and the process that they're referring to as telemedicine. 
So this is the idea that as an outpatient, and this would affect the, the dietitians, uh, you know, managing diabetic patients or, or home animal parental patients, that you can manage them over the phone, um, either by audio only, that means just phone call and talking to them, or audio visual, where you do Zoom, Skype, or Blue Jeans, one of these things where you can actually see the patient, they can see you. Uh, two days ago, I had my first telemedicine clinic. <laughs> it was an absolute disaster. My first patient was over 80 years old. Uh, we got on the phone. We said, well, we just sent you the email. Just click on that link. And there's a pause. And she goes, what's a link? So we said, okay, forget that. We're just, we're just going to talk on the phone. Next patient, 78 years old, same thing. Um, Interesting what we do as far as charges, and, and this is stuff you have to talk about, is um, if you were going to designate a level four, level five, if you're doing telemedicine with no physical exam, then you just back off one level uh, of charge. Um, in the ICU, you can describe face-to-face -face meetings with the patient through the door and just say the physical exam is deferred. Um, so these are some of the lessons we've learned from the field. Given the current stay-at-home orders around the globe, how is this impacting education for healthcare professionals and the need for distance learning? How can we best educate healthcare professionals on these new recommendations? This is a very important question, and I think uh, all of us nutritionists need to start with being knowledgeable about national, state, and local trends. Uh, in Kentucky, I'm, I'm just incredibly proud of our governor. Uh, he meets us at five o'clock every day. Uh, he uh, brings us up to date on where we stand, what they're doing to correct abnormalities. He answers questions. He says the next day, here's what we've done to respond to that problem. Uh, that's very helpful to know as a state uh, what's going on. And then your institutional trends. Every Wednesday morning at 7 a.m., we hear from our uh, chief of staff at our university hospital. He tells us, okay, we restricted to one visitor. Now we have a total no visitor restriction. Uh, we're going to be out of yellow gowns in five days. Uh, we're getting ventilators from this source. It, it tells you where you stand in the surge, how you're uh, uh, responding to the uh, changes that need to be made. So start there and be knowledgeable about that. As far as how can you educate yourself on COVID-19, thank goodness we're in the age of internet and, and uh, computer technology because there's an incredible variety of online sources uh, by which we can educate ourselves. A podcast like we're doing today, there have been some fabulous webinars that I've already attended and uh, society-specific webinars, Aspen SECM uh, had a webinar, uh, Aspen uh, leaders are participating in webinars. Uh, there are subspecialty or specialty-specific uh, recommendations online and webinars. Know the basics. Know this is COVID relative care based on good sense, critical care nutrition. Focus on the conflicting data and the controversial issues. Be a source of this information at your hospital. Dr. McClave, these are excellent insights, and we appreciate all you're doing to help build awareness for the important role nutrition has to play in management of patients with this virus. And by the way, your comments on distance learning, I was really glad that you mentioned webinars because you're joining ANHI again on the 23rd of April for your webinar, Nutrition Care of the COVID-19 Patient, 
guidance and strategies for clinicians to optimize care in the ICU. So for our listeners, if you'd like to attend this webinar, visit anahi.org, click the education link at the top of the homepage, and register for this and for any of the webinars we're planning. If you're hoping for more podcast episodes on nutrition and immunity, rest assured we are developing a series of additional episodes to help support you, including the two episodes we published on the 2nd of April featuring Dr. Nicholas Dutes and the one we published on the 14th of April featuring Dr. David Evans and Dr. Paul Wishmeyer. You can find these recordings on anhi.org by clicking resources and then podcasts and videos at the top of the page. So don't miss an episode. Become an ANHI.org member today by clicking register at the top of our homepage to receive regular nutrition science news updates from our team, or you can follow the Abbott Nutrition Health Institute on LinkedIn. And then finally, our website, ANHI.org, has a series of printable resources related to this topic. For instance, infographics on nutrition and immunity, dehydration, and why maintaining muscle matters. And you can find these resources on ANHI.org by clicking resources and then printable materials. Thanks everyone, stay healthy and safe.